Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. Take the following everyday steps to help avoid the spread of all respiratory viruses. Wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue. Throw the tissue away and then wash your hands. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects or surfaces, such as remote controls and doorknobs. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. And stay home if you are sick. Call your health care provider if you develop fever, cough, or difficulty breathing. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. I'm your host, Joy Keys, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter at Joy Keys. Also, check us out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram. Lots of great pictures on Instagram. Also, you guys know who listen, I give away stuff, lots of stuff, books, movies. When we didn't have COVID, I gave away music, concert tickets, all kinds of stuff. So I encourage you to follow somewhere on one of the social media. I try to post it on every place so that, you know, more people have a chance to win. Um, and I just want to thank you for um, listening when I was, like, on a little break. Um, you still were downloading. Thank you again. And now you can check us out here at Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher, all those places. So if you weren't listening on iTunes and you like Spotify, check us out on Spotify. Follow there. You have choices. <laughs> well, this morning I have a wonderful writer. Um, she is a diversity consultant. She's an occasional feminist. Uh, she talks about intersectionality, policing, gender, sexual assault, and lots of other current events. You can find her work on Time.com, The Guardian, Washington, Washington Post, Ebony, Essence, a lot of places, NPR, Daily Show, so on and so forth. Nikki Kendall, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for coming on, and thank you for writing this book. Um, this is not an easy read, but it's a needed read because, I mean, I'm educating myself as a black woman, but um, for uh, non-people, people not, not, that are not people of color, uh, I think it's going to be hard to digest. They might have to put it down and come back to it a couple of days, maybe a week later. Um, the book she wrote is called Hood Feminism, and um, I'll be giving away copies of that as well. Let me ask you, where did you first learn about feminism when you were younger? Where, where did you see that? Who taught you about it? Um, so I actually learned about feminism sort of casually from, you know, the term itself, from TV, you know, designing women, shows like that. But in terms of actual lived feminism, I learned about it from my grandmother and the women around me. I, I didn't, she would not have called herself a feminist. 
but it was very much um, the here's how you take care of yourself. This is you have to go to school, you have to work, you take care of your community, your community takes care of you. So the feminist structures of my life were the women in my life who were always doing what needed to be done. But I would see the terms on TV, but it was always white women on TV. Mhm. Mhm. About in the story. I'm sorry. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Okay. You talked about in the story about you know your grandfather. He wasn't a feminist. Talk about that a little bit. So my grandfather was born in 1918, and in his head, anyway, um, that women had specific roles. There were things you were supposed to do, and he was sort of that benevolently sexist. He didn't object to women having jobs or going to school or things like that, but he was definitely the kind of guy who thought that women were supposed to be the ones that cooked, for instance, you know. Mm -hmm. And it would be this weird mix of things where my grandmother wanted me to be ladylike because that was something they both valued, Um, and I was not. I was not. (laughs) And he would sometimes try to talk to me about it. I think I was always a little perplexing for them. But, you know, I'm born in 1976, so I'm born literally 50 years later, right, 50-plus years later. Yeah. They were preparing me for a world they had experienced and that they understood. I was growing up to face a world that in some ways they couldn't even have imagined. So I don't hold them to the standard I possibly could of thinking they should have been more progressive because they were pretty progressive for their time, right? Mm -hmm. They wanted us all to have good education, to be able to get good jobs, to be able to take care of ourselves. They just hadn't reached the place where they were willing to let go of traditional gender roles. Mm -hmm. And I think that if they had lived longer, that might have changed, right? But most of their life took place in Jim Crow. Now, you also talk about in the book, the need um, for black men in our communities to get respect while they're home, because outside of home, they could not get that. But then that respect sometimes kind of got skewed a little bit in terms of, I guess, to a negative way. Um, you want to talk to the audience explain that need there, maybe? So this is the thing. I understand that racism means none of us are getting respect outside the home. Inside the home, there is a structure, and it's very patriarchal often, where we perceive black men to experience oppression in such a way that we have to care for them and their egos because their masculinity is being harmed by the disrespect of racism so forth and so on. The problem comes in when that is not a reciprocal framework, right? And that's before we get into whether or not your home is even a heterosexual home or cisgender and all of these other things, just Growing up, in general, we are, and we see this right now in terms of the Black Lives Matter conversation, the focus is often on the risk to black men. And that's not to say that black cisgender men are not at risk. They absolutely are. The problem is that they're not the only ones at risk. Mm-hmm. Hence, we get campaigns like Say Her Name, Black Trans Lives Matter, because we are all an, in danger. We are all facing the same obstacles, and then our gender our identity, our sexual identities, our gender presentation may increase our risk in a different way, right? Because the second most common form of police brutality 
is sexual assault and harassment. Yes. If we're going to talk about it as an ongoing problem, we have to talk about the fact that we are all facing this same problem. Racism is impacting black women just as much as black men, and then we're also facing misogyny, both outside and often inside the home. Now, when you went to school, because you went to college, what did you learn there about feminism? What, what was different? What was new? What was something you were shaking your head like, what the hell? Talk about that. So when I got to college, um, I was, you know, I took classes. I took a psychology of sexual harassment course and all of these other um, women and gender studies related courses. And what was interesting to me was the realization, um, I had a class where a young white woman, we were talking about Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill, and a young white woman said, well, why weren't black women backing each other? And I said, well, what makes you think they weren't? And she points to the black women who were on the side of, you know, which happened always. You know, well, maybe mm-hmm. Clarence Thomas is telling the truth kind of a thing. And I said, and the white women standing next to him, what is that? You know, and we would have these very bizarre conversations about being empowered feminists to become a CEO, you know, conversations about changing your last name, things like that. But what I didn't hear, and I was a single mom after a divorce, living in the projects, going to college, um, nothing about hunger, nothing about housing security. We were having feminist conversations that erased most of the women that I knew. And I couldn't understand how we were saying this was a movement for everyone when very clearly they were only interested in discussing the issues that impacted the smallest percentage, middle class and above white women, essentially. Now, you have a lot of great chapters in here. Like you just mentioned hunger. You have about missing girls. You have gun violence, abortion, rape culture. There's a lot of things. Um, That's why I was saying earlier to the audience, um, it may take you a minute, to read the book, but one of the mm-hmm. great things about your book is that you do bring other people into the story. So, you know, people would say, oh, women of color. So we think maybe Latino, black, um, brown, Asian women, stuff like that. But I love that you bring in uh, trans people, pe- women with disabilities. I mean, like, whoa. I mean, for me personally, like, I don't remember people bringing up women with disabilities, now, let me ask you this, though. Why should white feminists be concerned with women of color with disabilities? What, what, what is the, the need there? Why, why do they need to be concerned about that? I'm going to point out here, especially in the middle of a pandemic, that if we are all going to be in this together, we have to be looking towards a future where we address these problems together and the problems that some of us are facing that are more urgent. Because every time we say, well, this isn't really a feminist issue, we're really saying that the women it impacts don't matter to feminists. We know that if an issue impacts women, and in this case, and we're talking about poverty, hunger, a lot of the topics in the book, it impacts more women, arguably, than whether or not changing your last name is a feminist decision. We're saying, I'm willing to leave you out till later. You're not a mm-hmm. priority, but I want your support for my success, mm. that becomes a movement that just, you know, replicates the oppressive behaviors. It's supposed to be fighting. 
I like that you bring up eating disorders. I did a show um, way back about African-American women and eating disorders, and it is a real thing. As a matter of fact, there's a study of 50% more likely than white teenagers actually to exhibit binging and purging, and that's not something you bring up in your book. Why has it not happened yet? Why has that story not come out yet, really, even still now? Like I said, I'm 50 years old. I did that story even years ago. Um, even to this day when somebody thinks I talk about eating disorders, the first thing that comes well, to my mind in general, just like a flash, is a white girl, an anorexic white girl. In your travel, have you seen any change of that story? Not really. There's some discussion, some limited discussion happening now, and it's, it's really from sort of Gen X, Gen Y down, right, millennials on down, where the conversations are starting to be meaningfully had about the fact that eating disorders happen in people who are not young white girls. But it's happening in part because the physicians that are treating, right, the psychiatrists and and counselors and whatever they're treating, they're saying, we have these black girls, we have these non-binary teens, we have all of this, and what we don't have is really data or ways to treat them that other than replicating what we've already been doing for young white women, because we ignored these conditions in these groups until recently. Mm -hmm. And I think the story is starting to change as more people are talking about their eating disorders, more people are starting to recognize, you know, there's a weird narrative that black girls love their bodies at all sizes and we never experienced these issues. And it's, a narrative created by racism has nothing to do with our reality, right? No, that's definitely we all not know true. That, right. We all know that black woman or girl that is always on a diet, always watching what she eats, always trying a different fad, all of these things. We all know young black men or non-binary kids who are stressing about their bodies and they're working out a lot, They're whatever, whatever they're doing. But what we're seeing is the media depictions as those slowly start to creep in on some of the shows on TikTok and things that kids are making, people are starting to have the conversation about weight. I had that. I thought I was the only one. But I think we're not there yet where we have meaningful research and meaningful conversation. There is some research being done. There are some conversations happening. But as a society, we've normalized a lot of disordered relationships with food, right? Mm -hmm. Clean eating, um, that weird master cleanse, you know, thing that went on for so long, which is really just you starving yourself. Um, we're seeing all of these things be treated as reasonable, and so then the children and young adults who are engaging in those behaviors can also pretend to themselves that they don't have a problem at first, right? We sort of construct eating disorders as only being a problem when a person is so thin, so thin they're hospitalized. There's a long runway to that. And also in the book, you're talking about why, and this is for me, I'm I'm a licensed social worker, why people are doing things. And for a particular uh, people of color, trans people, why are they having these eating disorders? And that's really, eating disorder is not, it's not just about food. And many people may not realize that because, you know, parents sometimes, oh, you got to eat more, oh, you eat less, oh, it's not about that. Why is the person having this eating disorder? Why did you, let me ask you first, why were you having an eating disorder? What was that about? In my case, a lot of things were fraught 
at home, um, and I didn't have any control over what was happening. I didn't have any control at first over where I was. I was, you know, transitioning between different people's homes. Um, and then on top of that, I didn't have a lot of control in my life in general. And then on top of all of that, right, because we're going to layer this, this, this whole thing, um, I was going through the awkwardest phases of puberty in a situation where I could turn on TV, but no one looked like me. I could read a book and, you know, the girls that looked like me weren't there. Or if they were there, they were the butt of jokes, right? Like I had sort of internalized this idea that my body was wrong, that I was somehow wrong. And I had to do a lot of work to unpack the idea that I could lose enough weight. I could, you know, behave in exactly the correct way where I wouldn't feel like I was the butt of the joke because I am a, a relatively curvy girl, right? I'm real tall and mm-hmm. broad-shouldered. And at the time... Um, even though, you know, the butt and the boobs were kind of in, I was the wrong complexion for that and also the wrong height and so forth, so on, right? And I didn't then understand that my body was mine and other people's opinions of it didn't matter. I thought, because this is how disordered eating sometimes works, if I could achieve that perfect body, then people would be nicer, things would be easier. It wasn't true, but it's the kind of thinking that happens when you're sick. Mhm, mhm. I want to um, talk about the fact that these issues are not local, as you say. They're not just in the United States. Um, and one of those issues is missing girls. I just had an author on, Masan um, and Sashanga, and in his book, it was a fictional book, but he had a, a, a theme in there about three missing girls. And it seemed like nobody could find these missing girls. They were African. It, it was taking place, the story was taking place in South Africa. Missing girls happen all over the world. Um, why is it do you think that black or women of color or trans people are still not being shown in the media when they're missing? And what do we expect from white feminists in that case? What can they do? Um, I'm going to point out that we are still talking in some cases about white women that are girls that went missing and or were killed decades ago. We talk, we have John Benet Ramsey retrospectives, and we should. We should ask questions about what's happened there. But you don't see that same level of care and concern about missing and murdered indigenous women and missing and murdered black women. We don't see it about trans youth, gender nonconforming youth. We don't see it about anyone but white women. And I know that there's an entire argument to be made about which white women. But what I would like to see white feminism do is show up for in the same way that we have um, – all of these other programs created by women of color for the women in their communities that are going missing. I'd like to see white women show up for the idea, especially white feminism show up for the idea that we should care what's happening when violence is being perpetrated against people, period, against women and and trans and non-binary folks, period. If you have the power to drive a narrative to look for some of Madeleine McCann, all of these, these, these people, as a global conversation, you have the power to drive a narrative that says none of us should be going missing. None of us should be getting murdered. And we should be talking about the cultural norms that make that violence invisible. We should be pushing back against the idea that some of us deserve what's happening to us 
because we aren't the right color, we didn't we didn't have enough money, we didn't live in the right places. No one deserves to lose their child and not know what happened to them. No child deserves to be snatched out of their bed or off the street. And I wish that we were having louder, longer conversations in public about that level of violence consistently. One of the things you talk about in the book is that women of color or young girls of color are looked at as women, are hypersexualized, um, and mm-hmm. then you even quote studies. And this, mm-hmm. this blew my mind, this study that was done. You want to talk to the audience about this, about a study that was done and, and the thoughts of white people about women of color, children of color. So um, a study was done, college students, white college students were asked about their perception of black women in danger. And it, it could be women of a similar age, similar circumstances, right? And we're talking the same parties on campus. They were less likely if the girl was black to intervene, even if they perceived the person she was talking to to be dangerous because they felt like they had no obligation to help a young black woman at risk. And these are not, you know, I know we like to say racism will die out. These are not white women who are 50 years older than what they're seeing. These are the same girls in their classes, in their dorms, similar ages, similar backgrounds. The only difference is race. And they would intervene if they perceived a white girl to be at risk in this situation, and they admit it, right? But there is a perception that black girls can handle anything. And the study is horrifying. There are several studies that are kind of horrifying because it isn't as though it is just white women that think this way. White men, in some cases black men, sometimes other black women. The narrative of a strong black woman, strong black girl, whatever, has so permeated our culture that we are often thinking even though we recognize that there is a problem, she can handle it because we've decided somehow that black girls are old enough, smart enough, strong enough to combat anything. And you can see this with the R. Kelly case, right? People have been consistently blaming the young women. Well, she was 17, 19, 20. She should have known better. Where were her parents? Whatever. He's in his 50s. Why are we focused on what? they did in response to his predatory behavior and not on his predatory behavior. At some point, we have to start thinking about black girls and youth as children because they are children. And, but yet studies show that we adultify them so much that we will blame them for being harmed, even if the person who harmed them is 30 years their senior. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Question, what's the difference between the ally versus the accomplice feminist? Talk to the audience about so, that. So um, an ally will cheer you on. They're right there to tell you you're doing a good job. They might stand on the sidelines and clap. An accomplice gets in there and fights with you. An accomplice is going to be, and I'm going to use this example. I've been using it a lot, but I, I think of it, of, of it a lot. When the protests were going on at the White House, a young black boy goes over the fence right, starts walking towards the next fence line, basically, and you see the police advancing. A young white woman comes from somewhere in the back and gets in front of him. I'm sure this is a planned, organized thing. This is an agreement, whatever. But you saw the, the cops slow down, right? You saw them pause 
because the heads that they were going to bust weren't supposed to be white. They weren't supposed to be female. They weren't supposed to be young. And that there is a point there where, yes, obviously we know the police in some places have been violent, even to young white allies who have chosen to become accomplices. But we see far less violence directed at white bodies than we do with black bodies in America, right, especially by police. Even though, yes, I know someone's going to bring up the raw numbers, percentage-wise you are more at risk of police brutality based on race if you are not white. Um, And so when you're going to be an accomplice, you have to be willing to take some risk, right? You have to be willing to show up and stand on that line with the people who are most at risk. Otherwise, you're an ally because you're standing behind the people who are most at risk or you're standing out of the line of fire. And there's nothing wrong with putting up, you know, the posters or donating. That is all absolutely valid work but it is maybe not as useful as being willing to put some skin in the game. And that's not just in police brutality protests. It can be as simple as being in the office and saying to your boss who's not promoting someone because of their hairstyle or their race, hey, that's illegal and we shouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know, so-and-so is more qualified. It can also be, as we're seeing sometimes in some of the, the cases of sexual harassment, being a person who's willing to stand up and say that you are a witness, that you know what's going on. Because if you've been seeing all of this behavior, we're seeing this with the Ellen Show right now, something like 36 employees have come forward to talk about the racism and the sexism and so forth and so on 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 that set. Mm -hmm. You've got to be willing to open your mouth about what's happening or no change will happen. And yes, that sometimes means your job is at risk too. But you can get another job. You can't necessarily fix racism or sexism in the workplace by pretending it's not happening because it's not happening to you. Now, I heard you like comics. I love comics. I write comics. What's your favorite comic? Um, I'm I'm an old school storm wonder woman. Um, Mm. Nubia kind of. Like I, I like my strong female hero, She-Hulk, that kind of thing. Um, I actually wrote a nonfiction comic, too, called Amazon's um, yes. Abolitionist and Activist. I was going to bring that up. Yeah. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, but I am, I'm a nerd, right? I am okay. actually sitting in my office, and I have, you know, uh, one of the original, her, her action figures, Michelle Nichols. No way. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, my God. That's awesome. I, I used to like comics, and I used to go in a comic book store, and I'd be, like, the only girl in a comic book store. Um, one of the guys I was dating at the time, I was really young, he got me into comics, and one of my favorite ones was Sandman. It's not a female lead, but, um, I mean, this is one of the things as a woman um, trying to find, you know, strong female leads and, and stories and things like that, uh, being the missing girl, um, you know, in the welfare line, so on and so forth. Uh, these images that they try to put forth um, are not the true image, you know what I mean? But, um, and I'm a nerd as well. Well, I think it's okay for you to be a nerd. <laughs> you should write another comic. Um, let me ask you this. What are you telling your son about being a feminist? Can men be feminists? 
Oh, I think that men can engage in feminist behaviors and actions. I've noticed, though, people who say I'm a male feminist often are not actually a feminist, so I've been encouraging them to think, them to think about their behavior, not the label. Mm. Um, because one of the things I've come to realize is that while whether you use the term or not is, you know, a personal decision, I care more about your actions. I care that you're doing the right thing. I don't so much care what you call yourself what you're, while you're doing the right thing. I think that if you are making feminist choices, right, to support women in the workplace, to support equality and equity and fighting racism, you can call yourself whatever you want as long as you're doing the work. <laughs> right, Exactly. Well, this has been awesome having you on the show. I really appreciate you writing this book. And like I tell the audience, um, it's, it's not an easy read, but um, it's a needed read. Actually, it should be in some curriculum. Has anybody talked to you about that? Um, some people have talked to me about it. And, are and you up it for is this? going to be taught at some schools. That is coming. So oh I'm very God. excited about it. That's awesome. That's great. Um, it, was, it was funny because um, I had an, an, another uh, show that was dealing with um, women who were from Philadelphia and making a social impact. These stories need to be told and because people don't know about them and people are not aware they have these certain biases. Um, do you have another book coming out anytime soon? Um, I actually wrote for a, um, an audio book for a serial box. So I have a, a Black Widow short that's in there, and then I'm going to have a couple more things that will be announced soon. All right. Well, you're going to have to come back on so we can talk about the next book. <laughs> okay. That sounds great. Well, thank you so much again, Mickey Kendall, for writing this book, Hood Feminism. I'm going to be giving away some copies. Um, I hope you have a wonderful day. I hope you um, get some sunshine. You said it was a little rain out there. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to take the cooler weather, though. I'm going to take it. Fine, right. All right, right. you have a great weekend. Stay, stay you too. Stay during this COVID drama, okay? Wash your hands. I will. Your nose and mouth covered. <laughs> Wear your mask. Wash your hands. Yeah. Yes. Okay. All right, you have okay, a great, great weekend, okay? Okay, bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody, for listening and tuning in. Again, you can follow me at Joy Keys on Twitter. Also, check us out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram. And also, check out Mickey Kendall. She's on Twitter. She's on Instagram. She has her own website where you can learn more about some of her other writings and places and things she's going to be. And also, you know, look out for that new book she's going to be writing. Um, this coming Wednesday, I'm going to have Brandy Evans on the show. This is a special edition of the show at uh, 7 p.m. Eastern, this coming Wednesday, August 5th. Brandy Evans from P-Valley, uh, which is a star uh, TV show. So you can call in on Wednesday uh, and talk to her, ask her questions, uh, talk about the show. All right. Well, I hope you guys have a great weekend, and hopefully I'll see you on Wednesday. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. Take the following everyday steps to help avoid the spread of all respiratory viruses. Wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue. Throw the tissue away and then wash your hands. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. 
clean and disinfect frequently touched objects or surfaces, such as remote controls and doorknobs. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. And stay home if you are sick. Call your healthcare provider if you develop fever, cough, or difficulty breathing. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.